Good evening, friends. Good morning, Rajiv. A very warm welcome to you all to this very interesting global panel discussion on Rajiv Malhotra's book, AI and the Future of Power. It's been very interesting to read this book. It's kicked in a lot of very interesting discussions across the world. And more importantly, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to introduce all our speakers for this program. So let me start with Lieutenant General Ravi Shankar. Lieutenant General Ravi Shankar is retired from the Indian Army. He's an artillery man. He's a graduate of NDA and has been through the various challenges of being a military man throughout, of, throughout India and has served in a very exemplary way. In fact, uh, right now, he is a practice professor at the Aerospace Department of Indian Institute of Technology at Madras. And he is blogging very interesting blogs at the gunnershot.com. All right, uh, Ravi Shankar, General Saab, a very warm welcome to you. May I then go to Sharad Sharma. He's worked at Bell Labs at uh, Yahoo, and then he's been active in the industry and has been a key leader in stewarding the big developments that's happening in the technological space within India, namely the India Stack. He is the co-founder of iSpirit, an organization focused on developing product ecosystems in India, very similar to what NASCOM is. And of course, Sharad Sharma has been instrumental in many ways in touching our lives. If you have ever used the UPI, remember he has had a impact in his, active, in his uh, services in relation to that. Of course, finally, I'd like to welcome um, Professor Kamakoti. Professor Kamakoti is a very, very distinguished person, a professor from IIT Madras. He's graduated 10 PhD students, more than 25 masters, several hundreds of MTechs, and more importantly, he is the man, the brain behind the Shakti family of processors, which have been indigenously developed in India, and uh, he is the member of the AI task force, he's the chairman of the AI task force and the member of the National Security Advisory Board of India. A very warm welcome to you, Kamakoti. A very warm welcome to you, Sharad. And of course, finally, we have our, our the man, Rajiv Malhotraji. Of course, graduating from Delhi, he went on to do his master's in Princeton, I don't know, maybe Princeton in US, and then worked in a very variety of ways innovating along in the IT industry, rose up to the rank of a senior vice president, did a lot of very interesting venture capital investments. And now for the past 25 to 30 years, if I'm right, he has been the forefront of defending Dharma and Hinduism, especially when we have so much of widespread Hindu phobia around. More importantly, I think his seminal contributions to the Renaissance of the Indic civilizational ethos in the contemporary times is something which everybody will remember in the ages to come. And this book has been a game changer. He has written a lot of game changer books, you know, Breaking India, Invading the Sacred Spaces, Being Different, Indra's Net, Battle for Sanskrit, and uh, Sanskrit non-translatables, if I'm kind of remember, if I don't know, have I, have I said all the books? I don't know. He's been the person who uh, brought in the in infinity foundation 
in its infinite, impactful avatar from Ekandaseso. And of course, this book, AI and the Future of Power. A very warm welcome to you, Rajivji. And uh, I'm your moderator. What am I? I did my master's and PhD from the Indian Institute of Science, worked there for a decade before I moved on to the industry. And the last uh, job that I had, I was a principal research scientist at Infosys and now I run my little strategic consulting firm, Pragyan Data Labs. On that note, let's start. I think uh, it's very important for me to show this book. This is the book that's making waves. And I guess there's been a lot of very interesting discussions. A lot of people who agree with it. There are a lot of people who say, oh, no, what is this? I can't understand it, types. And I think this panel discussion is going to be a very rapid fire one where we really look forward to having a lot of thoughts churned ideas being brought up, and I'm sure it's going to be very interesting for the next, I don't know, 90 minutes or so. So on that note, let me just share this thought. AI is not a standalone technology by itself. AI has been a force multiplier of a lot of technologies around, and AI, the rise of AI, the way it's been researched upon, the way the investments are going into it, the way I've been watching the number of papers being submitted in the AAAI conference, and one is just happening right now, virtually, and there have been more than about 11,000 submissions from ISA, and the list of research papers, right, accepted for presentation in this conference runs into about 123 pages long. Poster session papers, 87 pages long. Amazing, right? And in fact, I am um, glad to share that it was Last year, same time that I'd been to this conference in New York and I happened to meet Rajiv then. And that's how this whole thing got kicked up uh, in my coming to moderate this session. Um, thank you, Rajivji. So let me kind of say, this book, I'm sure, uh, has been with you all, the eminent panel panelists. And I'm sure you must have gone through this book. You've gone through reading the book. I'm sure you must have a lot of points on which you agree upon. Lots of points on which you disagree upon, lots of points that you've got as your own insights. And I think let's start. That's how I think I should say. So let me just um, take you all on a small little uh, 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 starting point. Meaning, if I may say, let's request Rajivji to give a few minutes, five minutes summary of what this book is all about and why it's very, very important for India and the world at large. Rajivji. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mohan. Uh, this is a great panel. We have uh, eminent uh, subject matter experts, one from the military, one from the private sector uh, with a distinguished research background, uh, one uh, scholar in the academic world, and of course, my dear friend uh, Mohanji, who's putting it all together. Uh, Mohanji, you'll remember uh, about a year ago, as you said, you were in my house attending an AI conference, and I said at that time that I will do something which will change a lot of discourse for the next decade. I cannot disclose it right now. And, and it will make my own, my own books obsolete. The things that I start, the, the thought uh, movements I started over a decade ago, uh, those books will be obsolete because this new paradigm has to replace and update all of that. Uh, so uh, yes. at that time, you were very inquisitive and you said, give me a little hint. I said, I, you'd be one of the first guys to hear. And so I did contact you late last year to tell you before I made it public, because I think you've been with me for this over a long time and you are somebody who really understands my work. So I'm very glad that you put this uh, panel together. Thank you. I, In I, fact, I, you spoke I, everything, only AI, it's AI, nothing else, AI that we spoke, but not the book. 
Anyway, continue, yeah. Raji. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, I started this project five years ago. My my involvement with AI was when I was a graduate student in 1971 in computer science. Uh, at that time, I my specialty my topic was AI, but AI was very rudimentary. Uh, we were trying to write chess programs and recognize handwriting. So, how to recognize the letter A written by many different people, different ways. Those were big challenges in those days. Of course, nowadays that's considered very trivial. So, uh, AI has moved all this while, and I was watching it from the background while I was involved in other things. But five years ago, I started uh, taking interest in the new AI as it currently stands. Uh, this is very serious because now it is a game changer. It's as fundamental as the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. Uh, and India is not up to standard. It is about 10 years behind. Uh, it is catching up. It is it's suddenly in 2020, India woke up to AI. Lot of initiatives, which I'm sure we'll hear about. But you know, the thing is that uh, uh, China started all this uh, 10, 15 years ago, and they declared that by 2025, they'll become number one in the world in AI. And the US is fearing that they might achieve that. Uh, they're certainly very far along in quantum computing. They have done so much work in uh, you know, fundamental materials. They're catching up in semiconductors. Uh, they have a lot of big data experience in social control and managing uh, big, large groups and hacking them and all that stuff. So they're, they're quite adept at various things. Uh, my book is uh, uh, the result of looking at uh, the impact of AI, and I organized it into five major domains, and I call them battlegrounds because each a battleground means that there is no outcome, pre, pre, preconceived outcome. It's a battle. So in a battle, you know, you still don't know who's going to win, what's going to win, but it indicates there are multiple points of view. There are multiple forces each in each of the battlegrounds. So one is the whole economics, jobs. Uh, will there be jobs killed? Will there be jobs created? Probably both. But how is it going to affect certain economies, certain societies, certain individuals, certain countries more than others? The second battleground is geopolitics, military, China, uh, weapons, futuristic weapons. They're all here now uh, and, and things are going to change very radically. To what extent will conventional militaries and so on be obsolete? That's a big deal. Third is battle for the mind, the battle for agency, battle for who is influencing me. They're watching me, they're learning about me more than I know about myself, more than my family and friends know about me. And they're using this to manipulate me, to give me offers which I can't resist, uh, manipulating my how I vote, my ideology, maybe converting me in my faith. Uh, so it, making me fight another group. Uh, uprising, whether it's the farmer uprising or whether uprising against CAA or 370 or in Hong Kong or or wherever, the role of uh, uh, you know social media and social media is driven by algorithms now. It's not some human being sitting there making decisions on whom to boost and whom to block. It's all being done by algorithms and algorithms are becoming smarter and smarter with machine learning and that is what AI is. So if you are, if you any discussion about social media is incomplete unless you talk about the AI behind it. AI is the brains behind this social media. Otherwise, you cannot keep track of billions of messages and so many hundreds of millions of people on thousands and tens of thousands of topics in, a, in real time. You cannot do it uh, except with the AI. So that is, uh, that is the, the, the third battleground. Uh, the fourth battleground is uh, spiritual, metaphysical, consciousness. What does this do to our consciousness? Are we going within? as yoga says that we should, 
and and becoming better evolved through our consciousness evolution through spirituality or are we getting into more gratification from the outside with buttons being pushed elon musk is announcing this chip that will go inside your brain and give you all these experiences not only read and analyze what pattern of thought and emotion there is but also intervene and change it so are we being reduced to biological algorithms is that who we are or are we beings so one of the themes is algorithm versus being to the extent that we are algorithms machines we are like a machine running on organic biological hardware uh, 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 but then we are beings uh, beyond all of this so what's the interaction and relationship between the two that's a very big thing now these are four uh, these are four battlegrounds two of them are sthul sharir and two of them are sukshma sharir the sthul sharir is economics jobs industry that's the first battleground and also the stool sharir is the geopolitics of machines warfare uh, uh, you know uh, military all of that these are two stool sharir issues sukshma sharir is uh, the battle for mind agency psychology ideology you know voting patterns uh, that's a sukshma sharir uh, intervention of the of the ai and of course the spiritual dimension that takes it even deeper so one and two battlegrounds are stool three and four battlegrounds are sukshma and then battleground five is battle for india what is happening to india is india going to survive is india's sovereignty stable uh, if we do a stress test of india on the stoolishery level what does it say if we do a stress test of india on the sukshma sharir level are we emotional are we weak are we vulnerable are we sold out uh, those that, those are the issues in battleground five so with that i will stop and i i'm looking forward to a lively interaction and discussion uh, with my colleagues thank you very wonderful, much wonderful wonderful i really like the word battleground because it immediately puts us into the mode of being very alert about something that needs to be done and i'm sure the fact that we have a eminent uh, a person an expert from the defense an eminent person from the academics academia and an eminent person from the industry will really really make this panel discussion a very interesting one i hope so i look forward to it so let me start with this one statement you know battleground one if i may kind of say so rajiv ji from your book the battleground one on economy industry education and jobs you know the key thing everywhere and anywhere is just that it is the human beings that most important right and if you look at the state of our education the mediocre education of indian youth and their vulnerabilities like what you have described in page 300 the sad truth is that most indians particularly the youth are poorly educated by world standards and the large percentage are unemployable mediocre education and lack of training makes indians especially vulnerable to ai's inevitable disruption in the fiercely competitive global labor market yet discussions on these shortcomings is considered politically incorrect Maybe I should start with Professor Kamukoti. So I agree about the reskilling, but but I have some some thoughts. So Indian public general is unlettered. Uh, many of them are unlettered, but they are very shrewd, right? Okay. So AI can, in my opinion, can replace well-established mundane processes uh, uh, because of the availability of data. We could form engines which can basically replace well-established mundane processes. now i just take a very simple example you have given me 2 minutes so uh, half minute i'll finish that let us say that i want to replace this risky job of climbing a coconut tree 
right? So I just make a robot which goes up, which uses an ultrasound to find out whether it's a tender coconut or a matured coconut. It uses a small knife to cut it, put it in a basket, and bring it down. Now this robot cannot walk to your house and then go up. So there has to be somebody who is operating this robot, probably using a mobile app. Okay. So the coconut tree guy who is a climber now will say a CTEO. I am a coconut tree equipment operator. Okay. So there will be a reskilling that will happen, and Indian public is very, uh, very shrewd to take this. For example, I was able to convince my farmer uh, friend to use his app for uh, within within few few minutes. Right. So I now transfer all money to my uh, you know farm through bank transactions, and they are able to use this. So, but I do agree very much with uh, Malhotra ji that we need lot of reskilling. Uh, to basically use this, so this is my very quick response to that. Very nice, thing. very nice. So that's a very, very pragmatic and down-to-earth example. Agreed that it's about the farmer on the uh, ground, the the guy who plucks the coconut, and how it's going to impact him. But then I'm sure he must be having a mobile phone. Perhaps a smart mobile phone is going to be air powered, and that can influence to tell him whether to climb up the tree at all because it will say the coconut is still green. Don't even go attempt uh, put the efforts to go up. Maybe I don't know. Let's ask Sharad. Sharad, what do you have to say about this? The quality of the employable or unemployable youth that our universities churn out. What do you have to say about it, and how should how will it be when the AI comes and hits us up? See, clearly the native intelligence of Indians is very high. There's little or no doubt about it. So if you give them the right environment, they tend to thrive. Right. We haven't done that in our education system, with a few exceptions. You know, where Professor Kamakoti is there is an exception, uh, and there are a few other exceptions like that. But by and large, that that's a very small population, right? We are, that we are talking about. Uh, now, at you know, at one level, we can say, hey, gamification can aid learning. You know, we've seen that happen for Uber right. drivers. You know, a few years back, uh, uh, Ola, which had not embraced this idea, had more employees in Bangalore than Uber had worldwide. Right. Why? Because Uber was training drivers to keep their cars clean, to learn how to by using gamification on their app, and okay. Ola was using traditional methods, and you could see the distinction. And of course, then Ola adapted, and that problem has gone away. But uh, uh, so that is there. But I think there are more fundamental issues. Is to also uh, talk a little bit about uh, unsaid problem, which is. been created by our services industry it service which is called puffery now we know puffery is a rampant problem linkedin displays this everybody puffs up their resume a little bit but i think the only place where we have a situation where your employer will encourage you to puff yourself up because right. you know you are a pseudo expert in something and if you pretend you are a you know full expert then you will get the client job and then client will pay you more money and stuff like that is is institutionalized here in india and that creates this inability to go for excellence because anything that requires excellence requires you to be committed to it for 5 10 15 years we've created this culture where people don't want to make that commitment at all and so therefore excellence is not coming so we have created a we have created an environment where highly smart people are not fulfilling their potential so i and and this is you know going to be a problem and you know you you we so we have to tackle this in some way so it needs for us to reinvent the way we think about education as we go forward and i don't think we have done that even in the new education policy so i think there is work to be done 
um, and clearly this presents opportunities uh, as well as threats on the job site. But we have yet to seize those opportunities as we move forward. Yep, yep, yep. I would like to now ask this big question to Lieutenant General Shankar. Sir, you get a lot of people who want to join the army. Obviously, they may or may not have the ability to, uh, may not have been unemployable perhaps, but then you all churn out the manpower into people who really are productive and fulfill the demands of the army. What, what is your take on this education system that we have? And more importantly, on the background one that Rajiv talks about in his book. Yeah, that's an interesting question. First and foremost, uh, the fundamental thing is AI is going to grow. Right. As AI grows, AI will have needs. Someone will have to make that AI. It's not someone who's going to come from outside to make that AI. So if you take a equivalent, say, 20, 25 years back, when computing and IT services came in, in the world and computers started catching up, you needed people to, you know, uh, write or handle computers. And there were not enough around. Till such time, India burst into the scene. And all of a sudden, all our education you know, uh, courses and everyone took on to computing and, you know, and we started dominating the computing and the software systems. A similar right. thing will happen for AI. Right. I'm sanguine about it. Okay. 20 years, 30 years back, we didn't have a great education policy. Right. We still are, we became a software power. If your education okay. policy is still not great, you'll still become, right? Yeah. One. I think that's but what again, Kamakoti and Sharad were indicating, saying yeah, that yeah. Indians are shrewd yeah. enough to know how to yeah, it'll adapt happen. and grow Second. Second. You know, you made a very pertinent point. We get the most, I wouldn't say illiterate, literate, but the most probably untechnical people into the army. Indians, right. farmers, rural guys who are 10 standard, 12 standard pass. By the time they get trained and, you know, within a couple of years, they're able to handle the most complex systems. Okay. And you'll be surprised at how complex they are. And they don't, they're not even BA pass. Right. I'm 10, 12 standard, right? right? And by the time they leave the army, they're real experts at what they do. Okay. That's India. All right. India will surprise you with its, you know, India so, so, and Indians will surprise all of us. Yeah. So what and, you're saying is innately there is this ability for yeah. the Indian to learn on the fly. Yeah. And, Just that he is perhaps a little lazy, perhaps he needs yeah. a direction. He has to be put in the, this thing, uh, track. Put into one. the... Num Grill yeah. or the works. Grill. Right. Okay. Second thing which I believe very firmly, and I tell this right. to all my students, anyone whom I speak to, everything. Intelligence is original. What right. we are talking of is artificial. Right. Right? <laughs> artificial yeah. intelligence will remain artificial. The original in intelligence will always prevail. Let me let me kind of um, that's very nice insight, sir. The fact that army kind of can train people up because I just wanted to bring a very interesting small uh, snippet that Rajiv had written in his book. And it's about how China does the whole show. And let me just read out a couple of lines from that book, uh, from the book. He says, China's rise technological superiority has not been an ad hoc development or a chaos. Rather, it's been a meticulously organized strategy. It's in page number 123. Young Indians pursue their studies and careers solely as personal opportunities, not as part of an overall societal goal directed by a centralized coordinated plan. You know, 
the army that uh, does the training that you are talking about. Anyway, so let me just complete the statement. An example of China's distinct approach is that not many Chinese students study sociology or human rights with a career goal of bringing down China's social organizations. In contrast, Indian youth have been lured into various kinds of breaking their career paths. China wisely chose to import Western science and technology while deliberately resisting the integration of Western social theories into the management of China's domestic matters. Maybe I should ask Rajiv Ji, could you give us a couple of quick insights on what you have stated there? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, it's very interesting. India's social sciences are all based on uh, Western social thought, all sociology, all of that. It's not based on Vedic ideas. It's not based on Dharma Shastras and on, uh, you know, uh, Artha Shastra or, or any of our, uh, you know, texts, uh, any of our Shastras. It's, a, it's a entirely an imp, uh, import that uh, British taught us how to think about ourselves in terms of social theory that the British developed. This is very strange. Now, in the case of, so, you know, it's very fashionable for those who are into humanities and liberal arts that uh, they all want the tapa from some Western place. Either these guys are Westerners, that's the top of the pyramid, or Indians trained by Westerners, that's the second tier, or Indians in India trained by those who are overseas using Western theories, or Indians who are just sort of in awe of all this. So there's a whole hierarchy of uh, privilege and power and credibility in the social sciences and humanities and public policy and those, those type of things, uh, which is entirely Western-centric. Now, in the case of China, they, their policy of, bringing, of sending a lot of students, lakhs of students to USA was very targeted. They sent them to learn, uh, go to business school and learn some business process so that they can run businesses and do marketing to the Americans. They learned, they sent their people on how to do marketing to the Americans so that they could go back to China and sell their products to Americans. They brought, they brought a lot of people into mathematics, into physics, into all the hard sciences, into engineering, technology, medicine, into this genetics research. So the Chinese are in very targeted areas, which are which they felt are for nation building. Uh, they did not have, you don't find these guys in the USA studying some human rights and sociology and trying to do some breaking China type of project. But in India, a large amount of people who, are, who I find in the Breaking India project in, into all of these kind of nonsensical stuff, they got their ideology inspired from the West, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Uh, sometimes they're three, four steps removed, uh, you know, in terms of indirect influence. But India not only wasted uh, this kind of effort uh, to train uh, Indian people on Western thought, the so-called liberal arts and all that, which is very fashionable, they're now bringing it into IITs also. And you have not only JNU as a flagship, but you have uh, Ashoka University, you have uh, St. Xavier's College, you have a lot of these places that are flagships for the so-called humanities and liberal arts, not realizing that this is all Western, Western thought. So now they're trying to bring this under the new education policy. They're going to bring liberal arts into the, into the IITs also. But this is not the liberal arts taught in Nalanda University, where they were teaching 64 kalas. Those are the Indian liberal arts. The Indian, Indian thought in the humanities and social sciences, which I talk about in this book, uh, uh, Vedic Social Thought, uh, and I, I relate it to artificial intelligence. And in, in one of the sequel volumes that I have read, it, I will talk more about that, the role of our social sciences for artificial intelligence. But in the case of China, they just uh, focused on uh, what they need from the West, where they think West is ahead and they can borrow. 
And as far as, uh, you know, human rights and politics and governance and social thought and all that, they said, we don't want anything of that from the West. Thank you, but we're okay. This is very, this is a, the difference between planning and uh, letting things just happen. Because if you don't plan, yeah, I mean, the decentralized Indian, the, the speakers made some good points that we have native intelligence, we, it is better than artificial intelligence, and we have, uh, uh, we have this, uh, uh, the, 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 the decentralization, Indians figure things out on their own. I want to make a comment on that. Traditionally, the decentralized Indian ethos was very important. While the Western ethos was centralized top-down, we were bottom-up. So uh, it was a village economy. It was, uh, you know, everybody can have their own st style of doing puja. Uh, the cuisines are so many. The clothes are so many. The, that diversity came from this uh, spontaneity and the decentralized. Uh, now, the thing is, India has been chasing a centralized uh, strategy of FDI, uh, top-down, big Sensex corporate entities which are traded on Wall Street. Uh, like, you know, you look at Infosys, you look at all these companies, vast majority of the shares, uh, equity ownership of many of these giant companies is held in foreign hands. They are just Indian because they're headquartered in India and employees are Indian. But India is chasing, chasing this Western model top down. You know, in FDI, uh, they, uh, they, uh, uh, one of the statistics I've quoted in this book in, from Indian sources, uh, for every 10% growth in GDP, there's only 1% growth in employment. So if your okay. GDP grows from 100 to 110 units over a certain period of time, then if you had 100 employees, it's not 110, it's 101. So it is more capital intensive, it is more, uh, you know, uh, investment intensive, it's top heavy. So while we can keep being proud that the villager knows how to do this with the coconut and all that, the point is that that economy is being killed by our own top-down planning. The government is uh, focusing on top-down planning. The whole uh, industry is focusing on top-down planning. AI is coming in as a top-down thing. You look at the reports and surveys in India uh, that I've read all of them from Niti Aayog to FIKI to NASCOM to everybody. The whole strategy of AI is how to upskill the outsourcing labor people. I call them AI coolies. How to upskill up them and then sell them to Microsoft and sell them to Google and sell them to all these banks in New York and so on. So we are not, the, we like to say we are this decentralized, this village economy, native intelligence. That is not where the money is going. That is not where the investment is going. That is just nice to talk in a seminar somewhere. So everybody will clap and we'll feel very happy. It is to make us feel good about ourselves that we, we say all these things. But the, the decentralization is not where the focus is going. That's one point I want to say. It's good theory and it's true for the past. Second area I want to talk about is that now the spread of this, the, the keeping the decentralized intelligence networked was a very brilliant Indian thing. We did yatras, we had melas, we had uh, traveling uh, kalakars and kathakars who went and told stories. Uh, that was the equivalent of the internet connecting all these decentralized. So I would be somebody in some village somewhere and they will teach me the Ramayana Katha with my local local stuff and you know, local language and all that. But it's underlying the same, uh, the same fabric, the same template, the same uh, meta narrative as somebody else over there uh, being taught the, uh, the, the Ramayana or whatever. So the, that fabric of the uh, human, the human 
net uh, has been broken. Uh, and, and, and who has replaced it? Google Devta, Twitter Devta, Facebook Devta. The connectivity of Indians has been turned over from Indian sources to Western sources. So even if one uh, in villager is, has got native intelligence and he's very smart, uh, another one has this. The interconnectivity and feeding each other and keeping the, keeping the civilization vibrant is no longer happening the way it used to happen for all these years. So now what is happening is this villager here has got a cloud, which is a you know, Microsoft cloud or some whatever. Uh, some machine algorithm is learning, teaching him and training him. And this other villager is downloading that. So between uh, individual one and two and N and so on, uh, the connectivity is now no longer the Indian style of connectivity. And this is why I'm, I'm writing further and I want uh, Mohanji and various other people here to help me to continue this mobilization. I'm writing further books on uh, incorporating Vedic social thought, Vedic, uh, you know, our ideas of Vedic metaphysics into the future networks, the future. So combining technology with our premises. Right now, the, the AI is built on Western universalism. It's built on ideas of social justice, which is not our idea. It is, that is why we are angry at Twitter, because their algorithms are not doing the things that we think are fair, because those algorithms are trained on Western universalism, their idea of social justice. So I will stop here that we are being, we are, we have a disruption between the bottom up Bharat and the top down Sensex economy. We have a disruption okay. and we have a, okay. we have a clash between Sensex India and Bharat. Yeah. So let me just kind of share these thoughts that, uh, Indian civilization has a long, long history, and so does Chinese civilization, and there are a lot of very interesting ethos and values that both bring to the table, and there's a lot of learnings both ways, I suppose, but more importantly, the fact that China has a centralized command economy, command, uh, con uh, command and control country, if I may kind of say the ideology, they would like to groom their youngsters into certain ways by which they would continue to be employable in the high-tech world. And we in India would like to allow the Indians to figure that out in a very smart way. But then what you're saying is that, yes, at the common man level, a lot of indigenous ideas and thinking that will happen. But more importantly, what you're saying is the government of India has to know what strategies to use to attract the FDI. In a similar way, government of India should do all that is possible to bring in the right kind of STEM ideas, teaching STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and possibly um, uh, indigenous to the people at large across the country so that there's a certain foundational unity on the civilizational values that India brings along, India that is Bharat. But then let me take this question to Professor Kamakoti because it's a two-part question that is there. One is, of course, the fact that there are so many humanities departments that are going to come up and what kind of liberal arts are they going to teach? Is that going to be indic civilizational liberal arts? Or is it going to be something else? That's one. And of course, the basis for that is that we in India, we need to really have an Indic identity that can really serve the, the world at large, right? Like right now, what we have done with respect to the COVID-19 vaccines and how we are really made a big difference. That is part one. Part two of the story is how do we raise the education level, the employability level, and the fact that AI is a technology that's supposed to be a force multiplier, and that's something that all of us have to know and understand and learn and employ 
in our everyday professional work, how do we go about doing that? Professor Kamukoti, quick, short bullets, if I may kind of say so. Yeah, there are a lot of things that are discussed and I think uh, Rajivji brought in many issues. First, I want to touch up with China because it's very interesting. I'll, I'll just take two minutes now. Um, first thing is that China clearly used the West. They did not allow them to use. Beautiful. They did not allow the West to use them. So that is very important. Even in cyber security, it's alleged that they allowed the uh, you know, West to come and attack their servers and learned how to attack just from them. Right? So this is something, some very nice story that uh, we are getting. Right? If you actually take the statement made by Z in 2017, quote-unquote, I just noted it, Chinese communists have always been the faithful successors and promoters of China's excellent traditional culture. We all pay attention to absorbing its active nutrients from Confucius to Sun Yat-sen. Right? So this, this was made by Z in 2017. And so they have been using these theories of riddling and feeding, heavenly court, all under heaven, all these things to basically nurture that. Uh, education system, right? Uh, if you look at India, wisdom, thy name is India. So as Rajivji mentioned, what is not missing here? We have our Atashatra, we have our best political sciences, we have our best moral ethics, Ramayana, Mahabharata, epic. Just take Vidurani, I think uh, uh, Malhotraji has quoted quite nicely from a lot of Vidurani, for example, right? So we had a wonderful education system, the Gatikaftanam, which was, uh, which is again a part, I uh, first Malhotraji to include it in his next book the type of education system. But that all those went for a talk with, with the influence of the Western education. Right? So one of the biggest attempts that was made at some point of time that, you know, people who are skilled in some at uh, some profession should continue in this profession. But then everybody said, get a BA or a BSc those days, now BE and now PhD. Now we don't have a skilled plumber. We don't have a skilled, uh, you know, uh, uh, carpenter who can do marvelous art. It's today, you know, uh, I know a barber who I have to fix appointment for six six days. I could get an appointment with my director for within two hours, but for the barber, I need six days for an excellent actor. Okay, so 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 we have lost that aspect of that kala, which, uh, uh, you know, the 60, uh, 63 kalas, which uh, again, Rajiv Malhotraji explained. So the liberal arts has to come up and it has to concentrate on our 63 kalas. I don't know how much it is going to come as a part of the I, I don't have an answer immediately. The last uh, part of this uh, question is that, um, uh, of course, I was also a chairman of uh, AA task force and I did make a report with my team. Uh, I, I will share it with Malhotraji. One thing that we concentrated, it's a very subtle point, is that we did not look the, at that AI as uh, just as a uh, you know, wealth multiplier where we do reskilling and increase the wealth for the manpower, but we were giving a touch that it should be a problem solver to the day-to-day -day life problems of Indian right? I will share that report, which uh, uh, this is from the Commerce Ministry. They made me the chairman. I will share this report. Malhotraji, please do comment on it uh, whenever you find the time. So to just sum up on this, yes, China is an example for us. They have perfectly aligned their culture, their way of thinking. They believe that culture is, is the backbone or the fiber of their entire uh, system and that is what will keep them together and uh, that way uh, uh, that is a very very important lesson that we thank you Manu. wonderful wonderful yeah i would like to kind of share a thought it suddenly struck me that you know we all talk about employability but then what's most important is nothing like learning on the job right or nothing like doing it and making uh, money 
creating wealth. And uh, intrinsically across the world, we have the ability of the Indian to be very entrepreneurial, okay? And it is in this context that I really like to go to Sharad Sharma and say, Indian entrepreneurs, how are they attacking this problem of unemployable education that's getting to be dumbed down the universities on all the masses at large, point one. Point two, how are we going to use AI as a force multiplier to ensure that people can really start creating wealth, earning money, and making a difference, right? We all have to stand on our own legs. And then of course, we then start getting it across to the world and dominating the world. If that's an aspiration that can be set out, and I'm sure as entrepreneurs, people would like to be the unicorn billion dollar companies that they would like to create and run from here. Like I think a day or two back, we had the competitor of TikTok, that's ByteDance, really come up with a 164 or $69 billion valuation on IPO. That's amazing in China. And what's happening in India? Maybe I should ask Sharad Sharma, Sharad ji. Yeah, so, you know, uh, we have not appreciated that, uh, first of all, an economy based on science and technology is something what we should do. I think Korea got that memo, Japan got that memo, US got that memo, Israel got that memo, <laughs> China, of course, got that memo. We had, didn't get that memo. Right. Okay. And so we we have not even attempted to do that. So now in an environment where you are really building an economy on science and technology, then there is a pipeline that is there. The science and technology work happens in various places. It happens in labs, sometimes in open source communities. You know, it would be DARPA. It would be Stanford University. You know, it would be, uh, you know, the GPS. And then people find a way to commercialize on top of that. Right. So there's private innovation on top of that. Now, that's not our philosophy of making money yet. Our okay. philosophy of ma making money has been rent-seeking. You know, there is no Italian restaurant in Malayshwaram. Let me go and solve that, you know, point problem and make money there. And so, so and this is then reflected in the valuation that you're talking about. So we are okay. creating a bunch of companies that are fundamentally not valuable. All the airlines put together in the world make less money than Boeing and Airbus do any year. Yes. Oh, okay. 20 IT services companies of the world put together, which by the way includes Accenture and all Indian companies as well, make less money than Microsoft made at its lowest point of profitability. Now, of course, Microsoft makes many times more money than all these 20 put together. Pfizer makes more money than top 100 hospital chains of the US put together. I could go on and on. You know, Cisco is having bad time now. And yet last year it made more money than the top five European mobile operators that are there. So what's the big deal if we create a mobile operator? Is not the, that's not where the money is. The money is in the part where innovation happens and you monetize that innovation. So we become very good at creating services companies. But, you know, while that gives employment, and I am not against that at all of, for obvious reasons, we must re realize that there is a schism that has got created. There are companies that provide surf-like jobs, you know, but to lots of people. Amazon Retail is that company. And then within Amazon itself, there is a smaller version by employees called Amazon Cloud Services or Amazon Web Services that makes most of the profit for right. Amazon, right? But so that's the value engine. And this is the 
ਸਰਫ ਮੈਨੇਜਮੈਂਟਸ ਕੂਲੀ ਮੈਨੇਜਮੈਂਟ ਕੰਪਨੀ ਵਿਚ ਮੇਕਸ ਗਿਵਸ ਅ ਲੋਟ ਆਫ ਜੌਬਸ ਬਟ ਮੇਕਸ ਵੈਰੀ ਲਿਟਲ ਮਨੀ ਨਾਉ ਵੀ ਹੈਵ ਨਾਟ ਇੰਬ੍ਰੇਸ ਥਿਸ ਮਾਡਲ ਇਨ ਆਵਰ ਮਾਈਂਡਸੈਟ ਐਟ ਆਲ ਬਿਕੋਜ਼ ਵੀ ਹੈਵ ਨਾਟ ਫੰਡਾਮੈਂਟਲੀ ਇੰਬ੍ਰੇਸ ਦਾ ਆਈਡੀਆ ਆਫ ਬਿਲਡਿੰਗ ਐਨ ਇੰਡਸਟਰੀ ਔਰ ਐਨ ਇਕਨੋਮਿਕ ਪਾਵਰ ਬੇਸਡ ਔਨ ਸਾਇੰਸ ਐਂਡ ਟੈਕਨੋਲੋਜੀ and that is our problem and until we embrace this with both hands we will not solve the problem that you are talking about see and for solving this we if you permit me i will take we we've kind of got this all wrong one day we said we should be a big power in electronics so what did we do we created ecil then we said we should be a big power in telecom so we created c dot which by the way was created before huawei was created then we said hey we must be a big power in supercomputing we created cdac you know we wanted to be big in payments we created rupay right i mean so we are good at copy pasting stuff that is already there and now we know copy you know the copies have no value flipkart while it was a great exit from an indian entrepreneurial system is not created sufficient value nobody goes around and says hey i learned so many things from flipkart i must apply them in my startup that's not happening at all so it is a damn copy they will learn from the original right so i the problem that we have created is that we have a copy paste mindset we don't have a innovation mindset and therefore we are actually tools in the hands of people where the value capture happens i'll give you one example if you come if you came to bangalore 10 15 years ago you know bangalore had lots of bpos which, which were medical transcription bpos right a, a doctor in the west would you know you know after the consultation was over record something that recording would come to india the indians would transcribe it and then you know it would be given back to that doctors emr system then gradually over the last 10 years all that medical transcription went away and if you even ask people in bangalore where did it go they'll say oh it must have gone to philippines because a lot of our voice bpo work went to philippines actually it didn't go to philippines it went to ai all those people were essentially doing labeling work to train the ai engines on the back end and all those jobs disappeared they don't exist they don't they haven't gone to philippines so, they so, haven't gone to sudan they haven't right. gone anywhere they've gone and become they have been eaten up by ai and so we are creating these ai labeling coolies in large numbers right. ai labeling coolies are essentially just eat, going to take away the jobs that we are talking about we are not making a distinction between where the value is created and where you basically create surf jobs and until right. we make that distinction uh, you know things will think, not improve yeah true so so there it comes down to you know intrinsically indians could be very entrepreneurial but then here is the education system that kind of stagnates them or straight jackets them no, to thinking think, like no, surf i i disagree see our entrepreneurial culture is a mercantile culture a trader mindset okay and a trader never makes a long term investment he wants a short term investment so even people who have made lots of money in a trader culture haven't moved up the value chain although they have the money to create you know in in the west you will see a png create a research unit which is focused on some 10 year activity that hasn't happened in india none But of the I, companies that have billions of dollars on the balance sheet will make a 10 year commitment on research based stuff but, because but, they are mercantile background right yeah, and a licensing exactly. raj made it even stronger so so, so, so i just wanted to intervene there sharath and i want to bring you to the book and very interestingly rajiv uses a very interesting example okay and then he hits it hard and i just want to hear 
what Kaupati has to say, what uh, you have to say, and what the Lieutenant General has to say. Rajiv says, I predict that the Facebook geo deal will be one of the major factors in undermining India's long-term dreams of technological leadership. Okay, this is an also an insult in on India's technocrats. Despite having all the components in their possession, Indian industrialists simply fail to integrate them into a comprehensive indigenous solution of their own, which exactly talks about your mercantile entrepreneurial thinking that is so short-term and so very what do you call uh, taking the uh, make the profits and keep running off or whatever it is. So, Kama, how do we battle it out? Because Rajiv brings it in a very clear way that the true technological leadership, the true Indic thinking, the true Indic leadership that can really be of uh, blessing to the world, that's not being nurtured, that's not being brought up in any which way. And if I may say so, after you, I'll ask Rajivji why that's happening. So, Kama. Okay, so, so I think you are referring to page 319. And there yes, is also a comment in page one which I really like about very few in the workforce have been educated in India's elite institutions. He's touching me uh, as right. IIT. And these brightest and best employees quickly get picked up for lucrative jobs with large multinationals. Okay, so right. that is also another thing I, I basically understand. So I, personally, I had been uh, under the instructions of Paramacharya of Kanji. I have been uh, I don't have a passport, right? He said you should stay in India, should not go abroad. So I. Wow, that's a, a solid uh, Indian ethical wow. Okay, continue, maybe, Kama. You've so, been making a lot of impact around the world, but still continue. Continue yes, what you're you. doing, living so, the values. So I, I just to take uh, page 301 and also page 309 of Rajiv uh, wow, uh, Ji. And just I'll, I'll again take uh, two minutes again from your time. See, uh, uh, so one thing that is happening today. Uh, uh, the multinational company that we have seen in the beginning of the 21st century, right. uh, the design decisions were not made in India. We were coolies. Like the, the, the people who are sitting in India are were coolies doing whatever job the West dictates. Right. Thanks to the digital India today, uh, there are a lot of, lot of uh, what do you say, that uh, the design decisions today are being made in India because we have a market here. And there is an ecosystem that has built. And that market today, especially in the IT sector and the digital electronic sector, we are trying, we are getting the design decisions to be taken in India. That means that coolie aspect is gone, and India's now Indian may actually makes the decision here. And then, first time policies that I see from the government, uh, specifically driving towards uh, Atmanirbhata, uh, has come in. Right. So today, uh, make in India, for example, the uh, recent tender about BSNL where they say this score should be in India. So these type of policies, first time we are seeing now, where we say that we want to encourage the industry. Though it is early days, I still agree it is early days. Now we have 300 plus companies at Research Park, which are purely our students and uh, start students within India uh, who have come and set up their uh, entrepreneurship. The, uh, today also I saw that the number of people who had actually uh, gone abroad, even last year, reduced. When I did my BTEC and finished, it was around 95% people, you know, Mohan, uh, even at IACV to see that. But then when now it is now dropped down to an abysmally low of 10 to 20% who want to go abroad for higher education immediately after that BTEC. The, Absolutely. The, right? And that is... No, and there are certain things like the national mission for inter, uh, interdisciplinary cyber physical systems uh, uh, and many such missions that have been coming. And that is basically trying to accelerate. If you look at the technology innovation hubs have been set by DSP, 
in 24 IITs, and we are now asked to accelerate this entrepreneurship. So that basically the things that Indians try to do, do job for Indian development. That is something which Rajivji uh, has re really written from his heart in 301, page 301, especially on India's youth. And these are oh. some efforts we have taken. Then next to coming to your uh, 319 step, right? Where how should uh, uh, I predict Facebook GOD, right? So that is coming. Right. See, in India, policy is one part. Enforcement is another part, right? Right. And the outcome is the third part. So there's a policy, right. there's an enforcement, there's an outcome. And what I believe in last 20, 21 years and also member of NSAB, etc., the weakest link is the enforcement. Today we make a policy, but how, the, how can we enforce? And that is where I believe that AI can actually uh, indeed help. Uh, um, and uh, another part is also uh, that uh, 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 AI can literally help on this particular very important aspect. Uh, uh, wherein we can basically go and start monitoring these type of uh, you know enforcement, and uh, that can take us uh, to a very very large extent. Uh, um, uh, and other uh, other very important thing is one last point I want to say. I'm slightly overshooting the time. Anybody who has excel, any country which has become a leader in any sector, they had that patents. They had that intellectual property, right? And uh, today, that is very, very important to look at. So today, we are trying to promote one such patent, standard essential patent called 5GI, right? This is the right. uh, uh, large mobi uh, uh, low mobility, large coverage that is good for rural India. Our own guys fight against it. Okay, so that is something that is, you know, China, I don't think they dare to do such type of thing. But no, right. that is something that we need to promote. So, so I think uh, government is supporting these uh, initiatives. And... Uh, so we have to grow up our intellectual property. We really have to become part of the international standards, right? So then that is the quick way of gliding this leadership and where, you know, all the points that he has addressed in 301, 319, those two uh, wonderful statements, I really like them. And that is where the true uh, flavor of Atman Nidvartha will come. Thank you very much. Very nice, very nice. I really like what you said, but then I think there's a lot of scope for so many things for us Indians to do to bring out the leadership and more so to ensure that the leadership is not straight-jacketed into this mercantile thinking that Sharad was talking about. So let me go to battleground two, and that's very important because this is all about geopolitics and military power. And there's a very interesting statement that Rajiv makes in this book, page number 198. And this is a question that I'd like to pose to Lieutenant General Shankar. You know, he says artificial intelligence systems and AI systems are essentially force multiplier. They're not standalone, right? They are designed to advance two goals. One is to pragmatically increase the wealth and political power like the likes of Facebook, Google, Twitter, and uh, Instagram and whatnot, all their affiliates. The other is something called aesthetically to keep the masses feeling good while people voluntarily surrender their private data agency and power to the people who are elite. So, Lieutenant General Shankar, what do you understand of this aesthetic power being exercised by the geopolitical players from across the world into the Indian heartland? And what is your take? After that, I'd like to go and ask Rajivji, what do you have to say about that? So, Lieutenant General Shankar first. Thanks, thanks. Uh, it's an interesting proposition. 
uh, that someone is controlling you. you know, control is very funny. That's, my, that's what I've learned in life. When you try to control people from the top, you have to understand that the people at the bottom start controlling the top also. It's a two-way transaction. Mm-hmm. So as much as Facebook tries to take my data, control it, and I've just taken Facebook as a value. You see. I use Facebook also in my own way. Right. Right. It is a, it's not something, it's a one-way affair. And in a wide country like India, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. AI, like you said, is just a tool. It will enable or disable a particular facet of uh, any operation or any system. It will enhance a system or otherwise. It will make a system powerful or otherwise. But to say that you know AI and Facebook and all will control the whole world and the India and all that, I don't agree. One. Number two, we also have to be cognizant of one fact. You know, we've been comparing ourselves with China and all that. Our social structure is vastly different. Okay. Right? Vis-a-vis China. 90% Han. Here, every 30 kilometers of religion changes and the language changes and the dialect changes. So we are a vastly different country knitted by very different ways of living. And I believe, this is my fundamental belief, you know, like uh, what Mr. Sharad said, I go with him. Our communities are mercantile trading communities who are risk averse, who are looking at profit and not wealth creation. There's a difference between wealth creation and profit. Wealth creation demands risk. So we have this culture and this culture is not, no, this culture, if you go back into Vedic times also, you have the same thing. But in modern India, I feel the metric of success is how do you eradicate poverty at the bottom? Right. Right. And I've seen this happen over my lifetime. But then I just wanted to know, and uh, I, I just want to expand on this particular thing, like what you said, the reality of India is so very different from how people may kind of capture it in a book or two or whatever it is. But yeah. I want to go back to Rajivji and ask him, this Marxist notion of aesthetics and how they exercise power. China does it all the while. The Western countries do it all the while. There's been colonialism to the East India Company into India and how we were kind of happy to be under the British power, though we were actually looted and ripped off in so many ways, which we come to know later on. So Rajivji, what's all this about? I kind of failed to understand how come many of us Indians don't know what you're talking about and what is it that's happening there? You know, pragmatic, pragmatic algorithms of Facebook versus the aesthetic power exercised by Facebook. I don't know. Facebook is just a small example. Western institutions, maybe, or maybe, you know, global institutions. Where are the Indian institutions doing such things? Rajivji, what, what do you have to say about that? So this is a very important part of the book. But I want to first, uh, if you don't mind, if I want, I want to also respond to some of the earlier point, okay. if I may do so. So uh, I think that uh, Sharad made some excellent points, and I want to introduce the word jugar to as an as an explanation. Uh, this mercantile, short-term thinking, uh, not investing, not making the long ten-year bet like China made long-term bets, and uh, not wanting to take risk, but short-term, quick. That jugar, 
I translate Jugaad as uh, the optimization of me, mine, now, narrow. Let, get me out of this predicament. And I don't care about the long-term implications. I'm not solving a systemic problem. I'm solving a one case, one instance right now. So you come and complain to somebody in a in a in a, in some institution, and to get rid of you, and because you are an important person, you they don't want you to make noise. They will give you something to keep you happy. That is a jugar. Whereas a systemic solution would be that they really try to understand what is the issue with the system. And this one person is one example, but there are many such examples. Let's solve the systemic problem. So the systemic problem requires more thinking, some risk taking, some disruption, some investment. It'll take a long time to bear fruit. Now that jugar versus systemic is, I think, the real issue. So this is why we've gone, we've drifted towards service because you don't need to be innovative. Absolutely correct, he said. But isn't the, that the, a case of deep colonization of our minds, Rajivji? Because the reason why we keep Seek a first aid band-aid solution. Yeah, this is where yeah. I don't uh, uh, necessarily agree fully with uh, General Shankar that, uh, you know, we are uh, the Vedic uh, and this Vedic uh, is mercantile. I would give a counter example to say we've had this uh, one kind of a tendency, which is Vedic. But what look at the physical infrastructure of Harappa, Dholavira, uh, that requires generations. Look at all the lakes and look at all the water systems that were built in the south. Look at all the metallurgical research that was done. That was multi-generational. That some of these projects were continued one generation after another after another. So certainly some people made long-term bets. Certainly some people were planting fruit trees which will bear fruit in the next generation. There certainly was that kind of a tendency. Otherwise, we would not have had so much science and technology and civil engineering and all that in our past. So I think physical evidence of all that ancient technology refutes the claim that we've always been this jugard, quick, short-term, uh, too abstract, too theoretical, not pragmatic. We've had pragmatics. So when you're talking about the aesthetics and pragmatics, the pragmatics have existed in, in the past. So now there comes your question, what happened to it? Did the colonizers destroy it? Because you can't say that it is in our DNA that we are Jugar people and we don't understand systemic thinking, long-term thinking and long-term bets and all that. You can't say that. But what something happened between the ancient time and now, and was it the widespread destruction of institutions of thinking? Was it the was it the uh, the fear that you have been killed? You are being your relatives are being killed. You have to do jugar to improvise to survive. You got to suck up to these guys, whoever the dominant culture is who ruled over us. We got to cave into them. Whether it maybe it happened first with the Mughals, then it happened with the British. Now it's happening with Google Devata and all these kind of guys. So I, I think that this we should not accept this weakness as endemic to our civilization. We should accept it as an aberration. We should accept it as a fall of our civilization. The fall and collapse of our civilization turned us into these slaves and turned us into these coolies. So that, that differentiation I want to uh, clear clarify. Okay. The other thing I want to clarify is, I, I haven't gone public with this, but I should tell you now, <laughs> your friends, we should tell the world now. When my book was coming out, and it was delayed by a year due to COVID. It was actually pretty much ready when uh, Mohanji visited me, but COVID was coming, they were delaying printing. So we got lost a year. But anyway, in somewhere around June last year, 
when uh, this uh, geo announced that they're going to uh, you know everybody in india celebrating that we're going to get so many thousands of crores lakhs of crores from uh, facebook and google must be we must be very good they want to buy us out so we must be very good and so i called a few economists public figures well known people dear friends of mine and i said you know i have written against all this and i want to i want to start a debate because maybe people in india regulators need to understand a contrarian point of view and maybe it will help uh, negotiate the deal better with these foreign investors and so somebody even told me that you send me a, a 10 page up to 10 pages i'll write a, put an article in one of the leading public uh, publications in india so we'll serialize it i sent them that they not only didn't uh, publish it not one media wanted to publish my article which is this uh, the digital colonization the, the sections in part 2 the digital colonization of india is india for sale the return of the east india company all of those sections that i have written in this book i put it together into a like a 10 page summary with diagrams and all that nobody wanted to publish the hindu the times of india the the sunday guardian and and you know it was like oh you are sensationalist you are starting all this stuff don't you know you you are not in india's interest india's interest is we are getting all this fdi so this blindness towards a big picture this jugar the i think it's you and all the regulators the jugar all the investors thought very happily that this is very good for us they did not think and i'm so glad that uh, kamakoti and uh, sharad are, are 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 on board with this idea because this is unless we fix this jugar mentality which is also in the politics of next election just win the next elections and do some disruption break up that uh, the coalition put this here buy off that guy do some quick jugar political jugar election jugar and get some power we have to get out of that so either we need a presidential system where somebody is president for 10 years and he is not going to be kicked out unless he is impeached for corruption Uh, and then we, he doesn't have to do jugar politics jugar he can worry worry about nation building maybe that's why that's a secret for certain countries like singapore like china because they had a stable government for a very long time we our jugar culture is in the money making it's in the whether we we are investing in risk whether we are doing politics it's just become a, a quick quick way out of a predicament and that is i think the root cause Right, the root cause. But then that's that is something of recent nature. Recent, when I say recent, it's about thousand years, perhaps. Because I, I think so. In the world of science, technology, mathematics, okay, medicine, and art, the kind of original contributions that we, our Indian forefathers, have made. And I'm yes. I'm not talking something which is like uh, hyperbole. I'm talking about something which is very concrete, evidence oriented. Yes. The kind of uh, innovative, creative contributions that we have made. is amazing and there yes. is something being acknowledged by the world experts across various universities right and when i see that versus the kind of short term thinking that's current now i think there is something called the colonization of the mind which has kind of been deeply internalized by the masses perhaps and that is something which is not being addressed at all so let me kind of so so let me that. let me let me if yeah. i may if i may just a quick comment so mohan ji i hate to sort of bring out autobiographical material I, i generally stay away from that but i do want to make that point i am a victim of this whole jugar business because i i spent 5 years 10 years writing a book doing a lot of research uh, jugarus come they took rip off ideas here and there quick surface and they go off writing the developing these youtube channels and seminars and uh, doing this monthan and going on twitter and all that the same idea gets sort of spread out 
and then you know what happens is my my investment i made an investment i want to make an impact i want uh, i want the book to do well so that's why i'm i'm counting on people like you this has happened with every investment i make so when i go to people who are intelligent people and i tell them why don't you write some serious book do some research for a few years the answer they give me is not worth it because the indian market doesn't respect the indian market doesn't respect original thinking for them the guy who did no original work but who's very slick and who who can market himself who's good salesman and who knows how to be out there they they go after him they go they promote this they'll rather follow that guy whereas the person who put in all the sweat the original thinking the investment in uh, in creativity and original uh, intellectual work is not respected so the problem i think is very deep in our culture you cannot just blame the government and say government should do certain things i would say that the average human being in our country needs to respect the uh, commitment the long term tapasya our tradition talks about tapasya but this is not what is being encouraged so, today so so that is the whole point rajiv ji there is a kind of internalization of a certain colonized thinking which is yes. opportunistic and short term yes and then there is of course the deep tapasya that is brought out seminal contributions in the world of mathematics in the world of metallurgy in the world of medicine in the yes. world of art architecture and they are all standing evidences across Yes. and these are all not something which does gets done in a year or two or three there are something like 10 year 20 year 30 year 50 or 100 year projects yes and, and these these the... these long term projects need support they need subsidy they need uh, sponsorship and the public has to support them because if the public cannot support a long life cycle a long r&d life cycle project then we will always be just at the mercy But of other people buying technology from them that's the whole point rajiv ji you see here you need the public to support it but the public is deeply colonized as of now yes. as of now it is <laughs> and they can't understand the depth so i'm yes. just coming back to your uh, page number let me kind of take you to this right uh, paragraph that you written down here you know you talk about um, how china is going further in page number 281 you kind of write down china is going even further by defining its own novel applications of ai ai is just an aspect that embeds its civilizational narrative and values that's the key civilizational narratives and values this emboldens it to resist pressure to comply with the western human rights and values india on the other hand failed to develop the indigenous approaches to ai ethics based on its civilization and it's likely to be pressured into complying with the western criteria now you are talking there about the indic civilizational values missing but then you are also talking about the fact that in this world of power and politics that's not that's uh, that's something that's getting totally marginalized out and then you talk about soft power the culture is which is not equal to soft power and what's hard power etc etc and that is in page number 271 why am i bringing that up because the estatization of power is something which you talk about which is not brought out at all because i'm sure a sharad or a professor kamakoti or general shankar really understand the way you understand is there something that they are missing out or is there something that you are missing out because they understand reality because they all live here in india kama you have a point that you want yeah. to raise so this, yeah. this is a very favorite question of mine so just i put my hands up to this thing so okay. let me just uh, talk about the china right so uh, uh, so uh, the the basically ai and ethics so when we were forming the ai task force uh, under the ministry of commerce 
we also tried to look at what the other ai task force report across the world has and many of the western world had philosophers as a part of this ai committee now when we look at the philosophy departments here and my father worked for the university of madras so there was a radhakrishnan center for advanced study in philosophy this closed right many of the language departments have one faculty the sanskrit department in madras university has one faculty and there may be there are no more sanskrit departments in the uh, in 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 south india in in tamil nadu at least in the university right so so we are missing on the languages we are missing on the philosophy and the real solutions to many problems say even simple problem like what would be the insurance uh, policy of an autonomous driven vehicle right to answer this question we need to go to have a philosophical outlook in my opinion right it's not going to be easy suppose the autonomous driven vehicle means hits a man and the man dies right uh, who is responsible should i uh, uh, you know uh, go and uh, sue the hardware or the software or the network or what right or the sensor so even to answer such questions we need lot of philosophical input yes i fully agree with uh, page 281 of uh, what uh, china is doing and where we need to build in Uh, ethics uh, in ai based on our civilization our culture because the world we live in is india and not the western world and many times the western uh, western thought may not gel well when we start addressing practical problems on the field like what i mentioned here the second thing is about soft power right today look at covid yaar we were not able to even market our own ayurvedic in a big way right though, though there was this uh, ayush and other things like there are some trials which we have done in iit madras for example indomethacin is a tablet 4 rupees for 10 days your 10 tablets you eat 25 mg the uh, even critical cases are being solved and uh, you know there are some inputs now we did a trial still now we are not able to see that this is going out um, this is about allopathy then come to ayurveda and other things again there is a thing that there is no scientific proof for this there is no process for this i think whatever the decision makers are making may be correct because they don't have a scientific process something wrong goes who's going to be responsible now uh, so the thing is that we need to believe in our potentials first and then we have to start at least start working and trying to make these uh, you know communications good especially in say uh, medicine uh, in philosophy and other things medicine is more material world right so we need to get that one and that i certainly uh, you know the soft power Uh, is missing just because we have not invested enough into actually going and finding a correlation between what is happening in the what has been advocated in the past and today what is happening see we uh, there are some cases where you know they said that you know shake hands is not our in our culture we need to do only namaste shake hands were never in the culture uh, touching our tongue my grandmother used to say go and wash your finger right no sipping and drinking drinking all this corona now has educated us correct now so so this and today when the world actually says why india has controlled corona well that's again a big thought process i saw in large articles maybe these practices would have helped so just to sum up soft power uh, of our uh, ancient practices even influencing the country with our ancient practices requires a soft power and that skill we need to develop and i agree uh, with uh, uh, the pa page 271 comment of rajivji thank you wonderful wonderful but i just want to bring back the whole discussion to ai because what's happening is what i find is on site we are deeply colonized in our thinking even now in so many ways perhaps 
and that's not reflecting in the way we seek power, the way we seek to be productive and the way we can add value to the world at large. That's not coming out at all. But then I just wanted to go back to Rajivji and say, yes, Rajivji, there is something called aesthetization of power and there's the pragmatic part of it and the AI and the software and your book talks a lot about all these uh, big components of uh, at play. So let me just uh, bring your attention to this one little paragraph that Rajiv wrote in page 307, where he says, especially about in the context of say, modernization of the ma masses, the third battleground, right? So he says, Indians are so intoxicated by the sense of empowerment that their social media provides that they have slavishly accepted this new digital form of authority and tolerated its manipulation. For instance, it's Comes, it becomes very difficult to exit Twitter because they would give opponents a decisive advantage in creating influence, right? Now, this kind of psychological colonization that's happening right now amongst us, isn't that really damning and building over the colonization that already exists? And uh, maybe I should ask Rajivji, I think you should really, I don't know how, you need to really help us understand what this aesthetization of power is, what is hard power and soft power, what is the overall big picture of the civilization that we as India should do to add true value to the world at large. Continue. Okay, right. so let me just take a few minutes and make this uh, very clear because a very central point in this whole thing. Aesthetics has to do with emotionally, you win me over, you serve me very nice lunch, uh, you talk, praise me, you, your house is beautiful, you're wearing good clothes, your video is nice. So all this is aesthetic. It is the rasa. It is the rasa bhav. It is uh, all the all that we learn in the Natashastra. It is all about drama, poetry. It's about beauty. It's the world of beauty and emotions. That is what I mean by aesthetics. It's the, it's the emotional winning over. Uh, now, imagine somebody comes to your house and he's very, very aesthetic. He's a poet. He's singing praise. He's a singer. And he brings some nice uh, laddus for you or during the summer, in a couple of months, maybe he'll bring you mangoes. So you are very happy with him. Uh, uh, because, And so uh, that is what I mean by aesthetically winning you over. But he's a crook. He's a crook in the sense that as far as pragmatics are concerned, he'll get the better of you. You'll end up being poorer. He's done a bad deal for you. But he's done a bad deal uh, in a pra pragmatic sense. You lost money or you lost power or whatever happened. Pragmatically, you've lost. But emotionally and aesthetically, make you feel good. You see, there is, a, there, is a, there is that kind of a cunning. There is that kind of a cunning that uh, you get the better of the other person in a negotiation, but you're very, very respectful of him. You go and you know, look up to him and all that. But pragmatically, you want to cut, cut him out of the deal or something. So that is the difference between pragmatics and aesthetics. Aesthetic is what makes you feel good. Pragmatic is what is actually practically good for you or not good for you. So, what, what, so first, I'm differentiating between the aesthetics and pragmatics. Now, this aestheticization of power was a term that the Marxist came up with. They, they call it aestheticization of politics. They wanted to explain why the when the Germany had a very bad uh, economic crisis, depression, depression, no jobs, lot of unemployment, misery. Why didn't they have a revolution like Russia? They, according to Marxist thought, there should be revolution. The proletariat should rise and throw out those guys. How come the Hitler's party avoided the revolution of the masses? And that is where the Marxists came up with this theory called the aestheticization of power. What they did is 
they turned that energy into we are this great aryan nation we have the ancient glory uh, they had poetry they had paintings they had parades so they turned they made a nation out of aesthetic superiority whereas pragmatically people are hungry on a pragmatic level the people are hungry they are poor they don't have jobs but aesthetically and emotionally they made to feel very proud so this is the aestheticization of power now in india they did some british would put the raja on an elephant give 21 gun salute and he would go and play polo and they would have a picture that he is uh, dancing with some uh, people in uh, cambridge uh, his son is having good time so they made the uh, they made it look like to the popular people that we are looking after your culture we are respecting your raja uh, he is one of us ha huh? so this way the public would be won over that these people are good for us while on a pragmatic level they're taxing you they're squeezing your blood out they're taking all the energy out of you so in a in a in a pragmatic sense they are really horrible but aesthetically they're being very nice to you so this is the point i'm making in this aesthetics versus pragmatics now what does artificial intelligence have to do with it artificial intelligence wants to optimize the pragmatics of winning winning more money winning uh, you know whatever out of you selling you things but it also has mastered doing it aesthetically so you will be told that you're getting a lot of retweets you're very popular uh, you know someone told me that tiktok one of the things they do is they inflate your number of followers by 10x Uh, uh, to make the young kid feel very uh, ego, it feeds the young kid's ego that I barely joined and I already got so many thousand followers. <laughs> it's all fraud. It's all fake. So aesthetics through fake stuff, through things that will feed your ego, uh, uh, you know, making you look popular artificially because they want to win you over. But the pragmatics is the behavior change they want. Whether they want to sell you something or make you vote in a certain way or you go out for a riot in a certain way. So the actual pragmatic karma is that is the pragmatics making you making you perform a certain karma is the pragmatics making you feel good in your rasa in your in your sense of uh, uh, you know i am doing so good they all love me that is the aesthetics so what ai system is doing is understanding the aesthetics of every individual every community where are you vulnerable emotionally what are your hot buttons how to impress you you know by measuring which what you click what you don't click what your likes and dislikes are by constantly learning figuring you out they figured out how to manage your aesthetics how your feel good so feeding your feel good aesthetics making you win in in that way is being done while on a pragmatic level they're taking you to the cleaners they're taking away they're taking away they're selling you things you the average person is not going to become richer by spending so many hours a day on facebook or twitter or something like that uh, so this is the this is the use of aesthetics to achieve pragmatic goals it's the use of it's the it's the smart guy, salesman who comes and compliments you you come to buy something he'll compliment you he'll praise you your kid is looking so handsome your dues that all that is good aesthetics because ultimately he wants a pragmatic outcome So when the call center guy from India calls me and says, "Sir, how are you? How are you feeling? Is it, you know happy Diwali?" You know, I I tell him, "Okay, now come to the point. What do you want to sell me? Because because I don't want to be I, I'm not here to uh, be aesthetically uh, schmoozed by you. I, I mean, I don't need that. I'm I'm okay. I'm okay in my self esteem. So this aesthetic winning over somebody 
is more easy when the person is vulnerable and does not have enough self-esteem. When he's got low self-esteem, he doesn't have, he's feeling bad about himself. Such people need an ego to be pumped. So you can use all these kind of uh, techniques, which AI is very good at. Uh, and, and, and the long-term gain is you want to get the pragmatic benefit out of it. That's the Wonderful. difference between the aesthetics and the pragmatics. Wonderful. So let me kind of read a couple of paragraphs from your book, Rajivji, and I sure. want to go to Sharad. And a quick one at that. It's on page number 306. You kind of say that Indians are addicted to the foreign digital ecosystems and depend on it to communicate amongst themselves and to transact critical services across all sectors of society. Foreign social media platforms choose what, which individuals and which messages go viral and hence control the image, career, and social profile of the Indians. They determine, undermine the traditional sources of authority, replacing them with algorithms. And in the name of fairness and public interest, they censor and manipulate users by injecting their own ideological premises in the social discourse. Every time there's a public controversy, a scandal, these US companies take sides in the pretext of social responsibility. This is exactly the rationale that British colonizers gave for their meddling and divided rule policies. This is social engineering in the digital age. It essentially exemplifies what you're talking about. Let me go to Sharad. Sharad, what do you have to say about this? And what do you think Indians should do to develop their own social media ecosystem so that they don't get manipulated in any which way? So, so Mohanji, don't you think this yeah. is exactly what's happened with the Twitter, recent Twitter controversy? Exactly. That is exactly. So, Sharadji I mean, will be able to express yeah. that in a much better way. Yeah, I, I've been I've been writing about this for a very long time. What you've seen with this farmer business, and they also did it with CAA and uh, 370 and all that. This intervention is only the beginning because I'm very deep into uh, the, uh, the, the, these global nexuses that are using all of this. I call it Breaking India 2.0. And I'm deeply involved in all these guys because I have my own people who are sitting there, part of it, listening, letting me know. And I, I've written only a little bit in this book, but I have a lot of data, a lot of information on what is yet to come in the next year or two. India is going to be in serious trouble because of this issue. So I'm glad, Mohanji, you picked it up. And I'd love to hear Sharan's response. Yeah, so clearly, you know, the, the, the framing that I used to think about this is, you know, what is the machine that builds the machine? See, because Twitter, Facebook, you know, YouTube, and all these are the actual machines, but there is a machine that builds the machine. And unless we put our gaze on the machine that builds the machine, we are not going to get an outcome. You know, this is not as simple as, you know, a very popular set of figures in India say, hey, they're moving from Facebook to, or from Twitter to somebody else. It's, I wish it was that simple, right? Because we again have that copy paste kind of a mentality. If we just copy Visa, Master, create Rupee, somehow Rupee will succeed. That doesn't work. So we have to really think about the machine that builds the machine. And that requires a number of things. You know, for example, uh, you know, that clearly requires, uh, you know, patient capital because you, many of these things that we're talking about, you know, WhatsApp was when it was sold, the founders used to say, hey, we are never going to monetize it at all. So they could simply focus on the consumer experience without having to worry about how to make money. And there was patient capital available because they knew if they did that, this will create value and, you know, everybody will benefit out of that. There's another aspect, which is to do with technology. Clearly, you know, some of these things that we are talking about have a technology underpinning that we have to think about what the next generation systems are going to be. AI is obviously one aspect of this. 
The third is that we got to figure out what happens to our data. And if we don't create a regime around that data that we are talking about, that is not, that will not work as we go forward. Now, luckily, many of these problems that are there, particularly to data, are not, they, they are a techno-legal solution. And we have generally struggled in finding techno-legal answers. We could create a law, but that law is, you know, it cannot be enforced, you know, as I think uh, Professor Kamakoti was talking about earlier. Or you have a technology infrastructure, but there's no legal underpinning of it. And, you know, we saw that in Aadhaar. Aadhaar for a long time was a good technology infrastructure, but the legal basis for this was not clear and it created lots of problems. Now, we, for the first time as a country, are going out and taking charge of our personal data in a way that no other country has done before. And that is coming in form of a law, which hopefully will be passed this year. It was referred to the Joint Parliamentary Committee, which is about to issue a report and probably in the next session of the parliament it will be presented. It's called the PDP, the Personal Data Protection Law. But it has been developed in direct concert with the technology infrastructure, which is called Data Empowerment and Protection Architecture. And, and, and this, is the, this has already been launched for financial data. On August 15, this was launched for health data. And you already have countries lining up uh, to be able to take this forward. In fact, you have a very famous professor, Professor Vasanthar out of NYU Stern, which had a Washington Post article saying that the US should adopt this lock, stock and barrel. And so people are recognizing the value. And why I'm saying this is that one thing that we forgot is that the power comes from exporting standards. Something that works well for you and other people want to use the same standard, All right? So the excellent work that's happening in Professor Kamakoti's lab, uh, you know, around Shakti is around a standard that Berkeley developed called Risk Five, right? And, but this is their standard. We may shape it, we may influence it, but it's their standard. You know, if you look at uh, telecom, you know, nobody saw Telenor out of Sweden go and conquer the world. But their equipment companies that could bring that standard to life, Nokia on one side, Ericsson on the other, Siemens on the other, they are the ones that became global companies. Why? Because the standard, the GSM standard, traveled to other parts of the world. So in India, for the first time, there are two standards that I am willing to kind of bet will travel to other parts of the world. One is our payment standard. Our UPI standard is traveling to other parts of the world. The second is, we, it is going to be our data, data democracy standard, the data empowerment and protection architecture standard that's going to travel to other parts of the world. Now, there are other parts. You know, For example, our digital identity, Sri Lanka is using it, Philippines is using it, many countries in Africa, particularly Morocco is using it. So until your standards travel, and then a whole set of companies that bring those standards to life, travel with them, you actually don't create any kind of power that you're talking about. So the question that we are asking here is, can we think deeply about the machine that builds the machine? What would be the next generation of these um, uh, you know, social media companies? And what kind of technology, what kind of patient capital, what kind of private innovation do we need? And we got to make a bet on that. This is the difference between Huawei and CDOT. CDOT focused on a copy-paste architecture. I, I know, you know, people in uh, IIT Madras, uh, one of the professors there will hate me saying that. But, but the fact is, Huawei said, I'm not going to focus on 3G or even 4G. I'll win the next standard. Now, yes, we are creating a 5G I, 
but the fact is that a 5g is predominantly a, a chinese standard you know i mean more than 60 70% of the ip that was contributed has come from china now we are making one small derivative and i'm all i applaud this but the point is that we got to think a little more long term and then the machine that builds the machine and out of that will emerge several solutions meanwhile we got to regulate the current set of players so that you know we can force them to pay attention to what our national needs are but longer term we got to create competitors the next generation of facebook and the next generation of twitter and so, youtube so that's a very interesting response uh, and you are essentially bringing up back to the governance here from the fact that no, the masses see, are I getting i don't agree see the government is overrated see no democracy the government no see i think no democracy a 20 year project cannot be run by the politicians because they don't think 20 years 20 okay. year project But, cannot be run by the bureaucrats because they change their job every 3 years so the institutions that run 20 year projects in the west are either the universities you know right. you have carnegie mellon university doing that for driverless cars and i'm happy to say some of that is happening through the able leadership of people like professor kamakoti which is a new development we have to see this play out second it happens because of labs lawrence lab will take a 20 year project bell labs right. used to think 20 years right? right third it happens in the hands of think tanks malaria i love the the bill and melinda gates thing about malaria saying we think it's a 20 year pr problem and most of the gains will come in the last 5 years now you need somebody to think like that and in india you know i spirit definitely is an think tank with a 20 year vision and we're taking that approach but the government the bureaucrats and the politicians will never take a 20 year view they can they can be sponsors they can give you money but we are overly dependent on bureaucrats and politicians and when we become dependent on them then their short term thinking comes into our thinking and when it comes into our thinking we don't have the independence to move forward and therefore we destroy the ecil c dot and i would say bhaba you know atomic research you know we can build 700 watt reactors but the world is building bigger reactors we can't build them or they're building fourth generation nuclear reactors which are small reactors we are not in that game because we miss the play because bureaucrats and politicians are too involved there and isro to an extent succeeded because they didn't report to a ministry there was never a bureaucrat in charge of it in some sense so, so right. it is it survived but you know how long will it survive in reusable rocket is very hard to say you know isro may not be the success story it is 5 years from now so i think that we must not overly depend on the government i i i, 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 I agree with you fully Sharad, i fully agree with you that we should never overly depend on the government but what i'm saying is governance as an enabler which kind of steps off the tracks of the people on the paths of the people and enable the people to manifest the long term efforts that is very important in that sense i'm talking about governance governance you know, I, policies I, I that enable to, others to say this but this chinese are going to do this for us and okay. i know uh, lieutenant general shankar doesn't agree with me but i you know one year later after a hot summer he will right. have a totally different view of what is coming see because okay. it was easy to browbeat pakistan you know a, a economy one seventh the size of india right but it's very hard to browbeat china which has made systematic investments uh, you know in defense technology and an economy that is four times as big and we have just seen in armenia and azerbaijan that how technology will let 
a weak, you know, a country which has embraced that technology, drones, for example, you know, an area, Chinese and Israeli drones is going to humble a ground game that we have. So I will make a prediction that when we speak with Dr. Shankar next year, he'll be a chastened man, right? And this, this whole thing that, you know, somehow this uh, technology as a force multiplier does not matter, you know, would all this would have gone because the Chinese might rub our nose to the ground. And they've already demonstrated to us that our economy is hollow. Our pharma industry relies on APIs from China. Our computer industry is basically coolies, right? I could go on and on in any, our car industry, EV is basically a assembler for China, right? So, I mean, so we've been hollowed out over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And Chinese are going to make us aware of it okay. in a way that I really right. worry about. Yeah, I have to Sir, I really take the point, and before I come to, Sir, I have to respond. I just, no, I I'll, I'll just come. With this. No, yeah, I'm you, not you will respond. Chastened. This is for you yeah. only, sir. Yeah, this is only for you. I just yeah. want to read out a particular paragraph that Rajiv has written, which essentially talks about what uh, Sharad talks about. He says, and this is where you are very important. He says, India's in page number two seventy four. He says. India's security involves combating internal insurgencies as well as protecting long borders with hostile neighbors. This requires considerable manpower that consumes the bulk of the military budget. Insufficient funds remain for indigenous R&D and technology-related modernization. India is dependent on imported weapons to defend itself. India might find itself facing Pakistani boots on the ground weaponized by China's AI-based technology. And this is the mood point, which I'd like to present to you, Lieutenant General Shankar. You have been there. You have done that. You have been successful. Please share your thoughts on this matter. Yeah, I will. You see, I've studied China like you studied AI. I've studied China for 40 years from a okay. military point of view. Okay. Uh, historically, barring 1962, where we were politically inept, we have kicked the ass very brutally, and even now. To say that the Indian Army and General Shankar are going to be chastened next year is a very, very, very short-term way of looking at life by China. We are not going to be rubbed by our nose, nothing. Don't worry. I think you, you know, people who live in Bangalore and USA and all don't know what China is across the border from a security point of view, one. Number two, AI has to exist in an environment. It is not a standalone system which is going to do everything for you and you know, drones are going to kill everything. Drones don't function where we are with China. And if you go into the geopolitics of the whole thing and where China is going, you study their economy, you study the way they're growing, everything, they're not fighters. Ultimately, battles have to be won by people. You know, like AI doesn't fight, people fight. Drones don't fight, right? You have to fight. And if what China and Pakistan can do together, they should have done six months back, eight months back, they're stuck. So I think, you know, it's nice to say that everyone is going to grow the way they're going to grow and India is going to be left back and you know we are not doing anything and all that. I think is pretty pessimistic. Okay. 
Okay. I've seen this country grow from village level to where it is, you know, far more different manner. Right. And I've traveled the length and breadth of this country from north to south and east to west. Okay. I've seen our adversaries, China and Pakistan, at very close quarters. Okay. I've studied their economy. Okay. Right. And if you see my articles, every second article of mine is on the economy. In the or, I mean, on China or Pakistan. Okay. Right. And my blog. And right. people in China follow me. Okay. Right. People in China follow me. Right. I have had 12 million people reading my blogs. Or right. rather, I have not had not 12 million people, 12 million. I've had 12 million hits on my blog. People have read my blog 12 million times. Whichever. Okay. 250 by 12 million is what my thing is. So I know, I don't think, you know, this pessimistic ideas will take us far. Yes, I so, agree. I right. agree. We need AI. There's no doubt. Right. AI is going to be the future. There's no doubt. There are a lot of positive things which we have to get out of AI. There's no doubt. We need to have a task force which we create value for ourselves. There's no doubt. We have to modernize, there's no doubt. To say right. that we are totally imported, no. You're looking at a guy, okay, I'll give you my personal example, right? From 84 to 2020, or rather not 2000, to till 2015, we didn't buy a gun, a 155 mm gun. The last one which we bought was Bofors. You're talking to a guy who's introduced four gun systems into the Indian army, made in India. You're talking to a guy who's, you know, flown the first missile, 1980, with Dr. Abdul Kalam. I mean, let's not belittle ourselves to say that you know, the Yanks have done everything for us. Yes, I agree. Or the Yanks or the Britishers or the Chinese, they're not gone so far ahead that we have to feel bad about it. The innate power of India will take us through. Don't worry. One of the things we should understand about world history right because we have suffered is technological breakthrough in weapons how they led to civilizations coming down Babur brought cannons for the first time into the indian subcontinent and do you know what that led to right the portuguese and the dutch and the europeans brought cannons on ship for the first time and you know what that led to the Stories of the history of uh, military conquest is about technological leapfrogging where the other guy doesn't have it and he doesn't even know he trivializes it and the invader comes and he's got it. The shoulder stinger missile, because semiconductors had advanced to a point in the United States that they could miniaturize the technology of a missile uh, to, so that an uneducated Afghani fellow can on his shoulder carry this missile and shoot down a Soviet, uh, shoot down a Soviet plane, 15,000 feet altitude, 15,000 feet altitude with no big equipment, nothing, shoulder and he can shoot it down. This is because something the Soviets could not match because they did not have the semiconductor to do the same circuitry. They would need something the size of a truck, which you can't carry on your shoulder. So this, this semiconductor based Stinger missile breakthrough brought down the Soviet empire because they lost in Afghanistan mainly because their air force was useless against these uh, Mujahideens they, because the Americans supplied them with the uh, Stinger missiles. Of course, later the Americans made a stupid mistake not taking those back 
because now those mujahideen became the uh, these taliban uh, and shooting down americans now so that is a stupid policy but the role of technology in bringing down an empire is a very recent this whole thing about singer so i am saying that ai as a game changer is so dramatic in 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 china is the, the largest amount of they are the they are the leading edge in drones and they are leading edge in uh, robotics they are more robots in china than U, usa and europe combined probably around the same number so china's technologies the drone technology able to go around and recognize with facial recognition recognize this particular individual in a stadium of uh, thousands of people Uh, you know imagine if you want to shoot down one person quietly this little drone with one bullet uh, and one camera can go around looking for the right that's the person shoot him and go and this can be done at night this can be uh, you know with night vision with infrared uh, you can miniaturize these things they're disposable you can throw them away what will we do defending against lacks of these things coming so i don't uh, think you uh... you know you're living in some phase of you know imagination that all this will happen because these things don't happen take so it from a guy you, no no so take it me... from a guy who's fought who's you know been in battle for 40 years yeah who sure. brought drones into the, this country right i've handled drones for the past 25 years so uh, i think you're making too much of it No, no, I understand. Okay. I think, I think, I, I think you're making too much of it. No, I understand. Don't, don't, don't think that China is going to rule the world. And you know, with their AI power is going to. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of limitations for all this. I understand. Right. But I think yeah. we should, we no, should develop yeah, we scenarios. One. No, and and also, don't get away with the impression that we are not doing anything. Okay. Sir, you yourself have written that ordinance factory does not produce ordinance. Yeah, I, no, no, no. Quality, right? So, no, I agree with you. We have a lot of yeah, problems. So, so we, we have, have lot not of done the institutional reform that is no, needed. No, no, I, I agree and, with and you. To produce I, weapons no, no, systems that look, would, except in one area, missiles, and that Abdul Kalam, no, no, wait, wait, you know, wait, wait. had a role no, to play. Wait, but wait, wait, wait. I agree that, with right? you. I am not saying that you know we we are this thing, but to. to write us all ourselves off no, no, no. is also no, not no, right it's not black and white it's not black and white it's not black and white in this we are not this was the same this was the same kind of optimism and misplaced kind of sense Look, of you are comfort safe. you are safe the problem you are safe in 1960 because the indian armed forces are strong Right. Understand they are. I come from a state yeah. which contributes yeah, yeah, regiment. Yeah, yeah. Right? The Punjab state and Dogra regiment. So I understand that. But yeah. I think for It their sake not, you look, have to I, give them technology no, for them to I'm be not, look, Yeah, justice. I agree with you. Uh. We, it's not as if we are living in moronic ages, you know, with uh, fighting with spears. There is a lot yes. see where we we have tremendous problems. Our country is right. full of problems. One of the reasons why I'm in IIT Used to bridge this gap. Fantastic, right? I you Beautiful. must understand. You're talking to a guy who's right. not an engineer, also, but who's talking about right. AI. Right. And General Shankar, we are, General Shankar, into... we are not. General Shankar, we are not doubting your contribution. No, your, your, I'm not your, talking your, about your, my contribution. No, there no. are hundred, many more. And like your us. perspective. 
we are not doubting no, we are not not are we saying say. you are getting a, you, general you, shankar you, may i just say we are not doubting the strength of the indian army we are not disrespecting them we are not saying it's a one way street we are not doing any of the things that you are saying we are doing we are not doing that we are just putting on the table we are putting on the table different scenarios nobody can crystallize yeah, crystal ball what will happen we are putting different scenarios and we are looking at risk factors this is called stress analysis when yeah, you do stress testing that. when you do stress testing you put out different factors different risk yeah. factors and you evaluate them that so I so the point i'm making is the point i'm making is the past of what all you have accomplished with guns and all that notwithstanding let me just tell you the indian military wants to buy foreign weapons why they want I to don't buy so. why no, they want you, to buy rafael jet rafael jet costs millions of dollars they want to buy that? the rafael jet the navy wants to buy this stuff the army wants to buy this stuff why they want to buy this stuff because they feel for the for the indigenous things to develop it will take 10 years we have to bridge the gap in the meantime we have to buy foreign stuff otherwise we would not be wasting so much foreign exchange so the issue is between now and 2030 we are exposed and we need foreign stuff that is a fact that the indian military has concluded the the defense ministry has no, concluded no. may may i come in here rajiv yeah, ji may just come in i think what general saab says is very important and he is essentially saying that there is enough capability and capacity to meet the threats that are there and the very fact that the lca jet which has been indigenously developed is going to be deployed is a standing uh, evidence of the fact that atmanirbharta is coming out in the field of defense too at the same time i'd like to tell general saab that what rajiv ji is talking about is only the future it's not about hey, the past right and the point is to learn the lessons from the past which is what charles is bringing out and essentially the lesson if i may kind of take just about a minute time to quote rajiv ji in this page number 3091 paragraph he says india's decision makers simply do not seem to acknowledge the risk of foreign surveillance and that's because ai and data are very interlinked given the ubiquitous nature of surveillance by the foreign companies and governments the reasonable assumption should be that important indian leaders and bureaucrats are being tracked by the abundance of their private data sitting on the foreign systems so like for example the fact that you had 12 million hits for the blog that you write is a very very important thing because it shows that people are looking at you to understand how indian military systems work point yes. one point two the fact that you have been successful is what brings them to you in the first place right it's not that you have not been successful at all that's very important point 3 which i want to bring out and this is where ai and the future of power is very critical is that what has been successful in the past may not always be a what do you call the platform or the pattern or the what do you call blueprint for success in future which is what sharad is bringing up yes. right and yes. all of this i think kamakoti you have a huge responsibility because you are part of the national security advisory board and you have been keeping quiet what do you have to say to all this so i Shara? want to ask kamakoti one question i want to yes. ask uh, the the dif- a large part of the security and militarization of weapons uh, uh, the future uh, a big right. technology is quantum computing Qu- uh, right. the role of quantum computing in in completely devastating your missile network and uh, sending your missiles in the wrong direction all of that stuff uh, so w- uh, that is a technology where india is just now beginning to get started 
and this is a very strategic uh, uh, technology with military applications. So, Kamakoti ji, please tell us what you think of that. Uh, so, let me just address this po uh, bigger point of where we stand uh, from a security perspective. So, when when we look at a communication and or a computation stack where we are looking at where you run your AI algorithms, where you run. Uh, there is a clear notion that, you know, uh, there are two components, the hardware and the software. One of the things that we have taken as a fundamental building block here is one of this should be at least indigenous to make it trusted, right? Uh, either the hardware should be indigenous or the software should be indigenous. Many of the cyber attacks, whatever you are talking of today, let us come to quantum computing a little more later, but any of the software uh, attack that are happening today, the malicious attack, is a it's a good, uh, you know, um, matching between the software and the hardware. If I don't have control over either one of them, it is going to be extremely difficult for me to launch an attack that we are talking of today. That's precisely the reason that if you look at one of the uh, recent tenders that have come out of BSNL that we see in the paper, the core has to be Indian, right? So that is what they have told. That means the real control has to be a software that is to be Indian. We have the uh, source code and access to that. So these are the small building blocks that actually make a larger system that we need to address because the security lives in the details rather than uh, uh, overall address today. Now let us now go back to the quantum computing and the type of technology that we are talking of. The reason why quantum computing is going to basically attack us is that there could be a very high-speed way by which we can decode the decrypt the signals and don't interject a new signal and basically go and turn the uh, uh, turn the uh, direction of your uh, of your uh, right. thing. So this is all that the the mathematical strength that a quantum uh, 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 that that uh, that an algorithm gets from a cryptographic perspective uh, is completely broken by a sheer uh, uh, computational strength. Uh, which can basically go and do. But, uh, but to actually reach a stage where there could be a quantum intervention, where the signal is got, a quantum system has to be built and then basically a key is broken and then send back a response to turn out the missile. is far-fetched. It's not going to happen tomorrow. In my opinion, it will take at least 10 years to actually get that type of an intervention. Even to well, you, 10 years is not a long time. Wait, sir, I'm coming to that. So, yeah, yeah. so, so once, so by that time, one of the things that we are also looking at is the post-quantum cryptography, wherein we are making very good, uh, 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 very good algorithms that are now in very good shape for, uh, you know, handling these type of uh, crypto strengths, like algorithms that could be much more robust even to a quantum attack. And there is a lot amount of theory and software that is essentially being built here. So, uh, so, so my take on this is that yes, there are uh, the West or say our neighbors are very good at implementing certain systems uh, in, in with very good precision, but actually the mathematical strength lies in India where we actually can bring in that software and the mathematical components and algorithms, which can actually compete with them uh, uh, and give a very tough uh, fight. And so, um, yes, we need to build indigenous mass, uh, one minute Mohan, I'll just finish it. And we need to build indigenous yeah. manufacturing facilities. And then I think the government is making steps towards that. It was uh, the first and foremost, 
why indigenous thing so just translating this question why are we not today having a 7 nanometer fab in our country because we did not have the market right so the market now has grown design decisions are being made here we are getting an iot world we are looking at billion devices now you actually see at least the assembly of mobile phones have come into our country now we we need to bring in packaging then we need to bring in manufacturing right the semiconductor manufacturing i think this flow will happen so eventually because of the need the market potential and then the policies of government we will build in this manufacturing ability and that is where our system building capability whether it's going to be quantum or post quantum also will start developing in a big way so once we have that facility here okay. and then we have the mathematical strength i think that is where we are going to meet this sort of the challenge which is which is totally imminent within next 15 10 to 15 years so i fully agree with kamakoti i fully agree with kamakoti one of the strategic areas india has to get into is hardware is semiconductors and the 7 nanometer will by the time we catch up with it it will be 5 nanometer i mean ibm is still working on below 5 nanometer i i know the guy who's doing it so basically i i feel that we are in a race where we are behind we are starting very late india lost the semiconductor you know race during rajiv gandhi's time when he was prime minister he visited uh, dallas or somewhere in texas he visited one of these semiconductor uh, uh, places it might have been texas instrument or one of those guys uh, and, and uh, he made a very stupid quote when somebody asked him why don't we invest in chips uh, uh, you know semiconductor chips and he sort of said i don't know if, uh, whether it is semiconductor chips or potato chips that i rather have some stupid idiotic remark i mean he just did not understand in those days it was a, a few tens of millions of dollars now it will be 20 billion dollar investment it's and it will take you a long time china is, has the money china is also behind because it's uh, south korea japan usa and uh, taiwan and to some extent israel they are at the cutting edge of this semiconductors china with all their effort is still not caught up it will take them some time but they were sure they will catch up india needs to catch up but while it is good to make statements and make a proposal and uh, allocate budget and all that to do it is a very difficult job i know that lca is successful but do you know how many decades it's been how much cost overrun how many how many delays to make it happen so these things you know if the plan is that in 10 years we'll catch up with 7 nanometers by then the world will be even ahead our ability to catch up in 10 10 years is yet to be seen and you know i i in a recent discussion i had with another gentleman who's into all this uh, it's all the air one of my discussions uh, one of my panel discussions is with this on this issue uh, basically he gave the example that we were going at 20 speed and now we are going at 50 and we are very happy about it but the enemy is going at 70 so the thing is that while we are investing all this money the annual expenditure that china has is many fold bigger than us in all these areas where they are already ahead so so rajiv ji what you are essentially i'll tell you what in a kind of summary if i may kind of say so is that all this discussion points to only one thing and that is called the leadership has to develop this comprehensive 360 degree way of looking at the challenges and problems that's coming up ahead and i'm sure all of us have shared thoughts you know Lieutenant General Shankar was so very grounded 
and he wanted to share from his experience what can happen. He was very optimistic, and I think a lot of the Indian leadership is very optimistic. But then I think what you are doing is to essentially alert them to the dangers ahead. And then Kamakoti was talking about how within India we are trying to develop the skills and the talent and the ability to make things happen. And Sharad was on the point, right, trying to share how things can go out of hand because he comes from the industry and the industry competes with the global giants, right? And it has successfully competed against them and trying to come up with Aadhaar and UPI and whatnot, which is being recommended by countries to be absorbed in their own systems. And that's kind of outstanding leadership too, right? So I just want to share one thought and I'll go around with each one of you. Please share your thoughts on this. And I think we have spent, a, I think the time just has gone by two hours even without me noticing it. And it's very good that we had a heated discussion because that's the whole point about this discussion. We need to have different viewpoints. We need to agree to agree. And if only agree to agree, then that's of no use. We need to agree to disagree. And we need to bring out those perspectives too. And that was very great. I just want to bring only one statement. And this is something which Rajiv talks about in page 310 about Indian leadership, right? Just as it happened during the British colonialism, India's leadership over decades has potentially compromised the nation. The complicity and carelessness have become the accepted norm over time and resulted in such a data haste. And of course, data is the foundation for AI and any new technology that comes up. Data haste in full view of the public and right under the nose of the government. Essentially, what Rajivji is talking about is the fact that the leadership has to be aware of what the implications are, the strategic implications are. And I think several dimensions of the leadership and several sections of the leadership are becoming aware. It's not that they are not, but then there's so much more to catch upon and make a comprehensive, holistic uh, uh, plan and execute it perhaps in the perfect way such that India can really rise up as a civilizational identity and uh, identity, uh, one which has the Indic identity to uh, stand up and contribute to the world at large. So let me go with this one statement of Rajivji to Lieutenant General Shankar. What do you have to say about this Indian leadership development which needs to blossom up and look at the possible challenges that's ahead? Uh, I personally think uh... Over a period of time, our leadership has improved. Right. You know, right. Uh, I've seen all, I've worked, I wouldn't say worked with, but worked alongside prime ministers. My first prime minister with whom I interacted was Mrs. Indra Gandhi. And I've interacted with all the prime ministers from then. I've interacted with all, most defense ministers from that time. And later in my life, I interacted very very intimately with three or four defense ministers when I was in the senior ranks. Um, I think uh, leadership has come of a, a long way. Uh, to say that they don't understand anything, to do, don't understand the power of modern technology, not only AI, everything else, is probably underrating them. Okay. But the, the the challenges which they face are so humongous that they are not able to you know focus on one particular technology in which 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 they should have made game changers of winning bets for India. Okay, I see that changing. I see that changing in the past 
half a decade uh, especially with mr modi Wonderful. he's taking some winning bets he's taking some risks which i nice. hope will pay off for our country in the long term Great. and today's leadership is more attuned to the fact that we need to get india to a different pedestal we also have to understand that our journey has been 70 years old before that we never had a journey as a country we never existed as a country as a nation the way we are we are going to be far behind the curve on many issues but my hope is that at least on a couple of issues we would did we get ahead of the curve and you know set the standard like what mr sharad was saying and be the standard and i'm sure it will happen i'm a, i'm an optimist by nature yep right and right. Uh, uh, that's that's, that's a very important uh, point to be optimistic and yet we have to put in a lot of efforts and i you have what you sharad, have you have to make do with what you have and you must do right. your best for that and that's the way to go you are the ground level very grounded artillery man through and through yes sir so coming to sharad i just want to ask you sharad moralization of the masses and the way the opinions have been swung around and like what rajesh told the farmers protests and how the whole opinion is being shaped it's a perception war a psychological operations war rather than the uh, farmer true farmer on the field really wanting to know what the nature of governance is and how the leadership is evolved like lieutenant general shankar was talking about modi's take on all of this and how what kind of promise exists i just want to ask you this big question carelessness and complacency has been a hallmark indicator of the kind of leadership that you had do you think that going forward and this is very important especially in the world of leveraging ai and its related technologies you think we can really make a difference quickly fast in getting the leadership up to speed you are from the industry right so what's your take so my view is that look we there was a that we never you know we turned to europe after 47 uh, you know for the socialist kind of a economic model which was a mistake come 92 you know we could have embraced at that time an economic model which was based on science and technology right uh, you know the japanese did it in 60s the koreans did it in 70s the israelis and the chinese did this in 80s we could have done it in 90s but we did not do that and and we got away why did we get away because the system was so bad that just bringing a little bit of relaxation in the reg- in the regulation raj gave us a pump and a jump and we thought we were home free but now i think the lasting legacy of uh, uh, mr malhotra's book is going to be is to bring this to reality that that was insufficient and it okay. is time that we embrace that architecture economic architecture because without economic power you will not have military power you will not even have soft power and for that economic architecture to be embraced of public goods and private innovation we have to we can't use a korean template we can't use a japanese template we have to invent our own template and we haven't discussed this but the only template that i know of is coming actually from what we know for vaccines it comes from birac institute that was set up in 2008 
which back in time gave 50 crores for testing of rotavirus and we became the leader in rotavirus and and that set in motion a cascading effect where we have something to do with the vaccine and this is a 10 year 15 year journey but it involves us learning that birac template figuring out how to apply it to new sectors and that is a conversation that is a very important conversation and that would allow us to move forward and i am cautiously optimistic that will happen not because of any other reason but we you know as they say you know in we change when all other options are exhausted and i think all other options are exhausted so now change is upon us so this is what we got to deal with as we go wonderful <laughs> wonderful i think uh, this public private partnership with sitting in the hot seat of having to face the problem in the indic way is something which is going to really uh, which has to be faced and which has to really multiply manifold and maybe i should take this to professor kamukoti you have been pioneering the shakti family of processors and that's in the world of computing you have been the chairman of the ai task force tell us sir how are you how do you what do you think how is this technical leadership going to be nurtured across board across multiple dimensions of what this economy is all about what the economic leadership is all about and how do you think we should be able to really come out as a hard power and the software that rajiv wants to portray in a certain framework so professor kamakuti yeah so with respect to software i think government has started something for example man ki baat is a very interesting thing where you know we just drive the uh, uh, we we just convey what the government wants to do and sometimes if there is a fake propaganda by the social media through the social media different platforms i think there are something so there are lot more communications that we see more use of course rajiv will not agree on these platforms like twitter etc or a period of time probably will have our own indian platforms for doing this i think that is one uh, positive step i see in the leadership for reaching the public but this data stealing is quite uh, this thing for example my father is a professor of sanskrit retired he wanted a commentary of dakshinam uh, dakshinamurthy stava written by uh, uh, ramatita and this was in uh, some foreign uh, library and we had to pay 5 pounds per sheet to get it Okay, so so this data stealing started in age century before. Uh, I, I don't think Ramachita went to that foreign country to write this comment. So she has written it here, right? Now um, somewhere we have to arrest first and foremost. I think the empowerment will come when the PDPR comes, as uh, uh, you know, Sharath actually pointed out, right? When the PDPR comes, then there should be a sector-wise policy that needs to, uh, the sector-wise pro- process that needs to work. PDPR may give you the policies. but then we need processes that will enforce these policies i think that is going to be a really challenging task and then uh, that will basically evolve data exchanges and that is where we can uh, provide so for a from a bureaucratic perspective they need a support of a particular law or an ordinance or whatever they need a support of some uh, sort of legal power to basically enforce this and think- i think uh gdpr now makes yeah. a very important thing and overall uh, the i believe i am also very optimistic and that's why i have stayed back in india and uh, uh, so uh, i believe that some of the make in india policies uh, uh, yeah yeah so, do you think the leadership has to be nurtured so they can appreciate the kind see, of that I, i don't i don't think that see, the leadership comes is not to, uh, aware of the things that we are talking about i think they are nurtured they know about what this is but they need policies to basically govern the, basically support them right so they want to make a decision today 
whether data should be localized or not, we need a policy, right? Then PDPR has to come in place. Then only we can basically take up that as a policy. See, bureaucracy runs by rules, right? They can't go by rules. And we need to have strong rules. And the rules are evolving. And as the change are happening, the rules have to evolve and the rules will change and then it has to I think it's a it's a very interesting debate that can happen between Sharad and you, Professor Kamakoti, because yeah. of only one reason. Industry wants to be unshackled. You need to have bureaucracy that lives up to this unshackling and yet being in control so that the governance can happen. But then on that note, I just wanted to ask Rajivji, because you're going to have the last word of this discussion. We have spent about two and quarter hours, two hours, 20 minutes into this. And I just want to ask Rajivji, what is it that has to be done by the Indian leadership to be able to gather the positive, optimistic prospects of how India can face the future in a strong, successful way? Can you please share your thoughts on that, especially yes. since you have mentioned many of these points in the book? Yes. So first of all, I think that uh, when we talk about leadership uh, being good, uh, I think uh, people are talking about the Modi government, but the leadership that is actually running the show is the bureaucrats, the IAS, and they haven't been changed. They have not reformed. I have gone and given talks at the uh, Masuri where they train these, these bureaucrats at the top highest level. I mean, I've gotten to know some of those people. I know about the UPSC exam, how they select, how they train them. So the, 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 government is run by the bureaucrats, it's not run by the politician. The same politician can be one day in this ministry, another day something totally unrelated moved around here and there. They're not subject matter experts. And they're also busy running around winning elections. So the continuity is the IAS people and the IAS people are old school. They, I know a couple of days ago, government announced that they want to bring in joint secretaries from the outside, which is a good move. But when I talked to somebody at the, who is one of the top IS guys, I said, how do you feel about lateral coming in from outside? He said that IS people close ranks and make them fail. Uh, outsider, they only want the old boys, the old, the, the, the old boys and women's network of IS people to prevail. And outsiders are looked upon very suspiciously and therefore they, they just close ranks. So until, until Modi or somebody can break this monopoly of the Babus and reform the Babus into, a, you know, bring them into the modern age, because they're still running the old system like they, they used to. They're neither in touch with the grassroots Bharatiya systems of governance nor are they competent at the level of private industry, corporate management, latest management tools that you would see taught in the business world. So they're neither uh, with the ancient uh, in terms of cutting edge, uh, in terms of being really good at it, nor the cutting edge of the modern uh, management tools. They're basically the old British Raj method just going on continuing. So that is, I think, the, one of the critical things that the government has to solve. My worry is that the dual threat of internal and external. The internal is the breaking India forces, which are now gone to 2.0. And I haven't disclosed too much in this book. I'm we're keeping it for my next one because I've done a lot of research on what these internal breaking India forces are up to, all these global players using AI, using machine learning, using this data to create rift and violence and all of that. That's a very, very dangerous thing on its way. That combined with the China-Pakistan combination, with China supplying the technology and the money, 
and Pakistan supplying the boots on the ground, general is correct that uh, Chinese soldiers aren't necessarily uh, in terms of man-to-man -man fighting, but China will never put boots on the ground. They will get the Pakistanis to do that for them, whether it is infiltrators and terrorists or whether it is actual soldiers. So Pakistan has become a Chinese colony. We have to understand that Pakistan is a Chinese colony that is irreversible. Uh, there is Pakistan has rented itself out, its people and its geography and everything. And so it's, it's a kind of an extension of uh, China into that area. So this dual threat of the internal breaking India forces, which are connected with global nexuses and the long borders with China, Pakistan, uh, you know, sitting there is a very serious uh, problem for us. I'm starting, Infinity Foundation is starting a manifesto for artificial intelligence for India. Okay. We're starting that. And I want all of you to join that. And we are going to send out a thought paper and uh, uh, we want to create a forum. Uh, we already have some very important people signed up. Uh, some of them uh, have been on these, uh, you know, we put up about 12 or 13 of these episodes so far. We have another 20 recorded that are in the pipeline because we're putting them up at three every week. And we have another 10 or 15 waiting to be recorded. So by the time, by a month or month and a half from now, we will have had a very large number of senior thought leaders from government, from military, from private industry, from academics, from research, all of that. Uh, and we want to mobilize this to create a manifesto and impact policy, impact budget. Uh, we are staying out of media because they're lightweights and we are staying out of the, you know, these people who are fighting Hindutva and fighting a church battle here or fighting some latest scandal or political rivalry between parties. I think that kind of a tamasha will go on in a democracy, fine. But the kind of thinking needed for us is long-term, very serious thinking. So that is more like a hobby on the side. It should not become the main occupation. To really move India forward into this AI manifesto, we need serious people like yourselves. And I'm, I want to, my closing statement is I want to thank you for spending the time. Uh, you are subject matter experts. I have a lot of respect for you. I want you as, as uh, colleagues and uh, friends on this journey. And I want to thank uh, my dear old friend, uh, Dr. T.S. Mohan, uh, who's been a great ally for many, many years. And uh, this is a field where his background in AI and technology and his background in dharma and uh, about the civilization uh, both come together. And I, I'm sure we will work, uh, we'll work hand in hand. So with that, I want to say namaste to all of you and thank you so much. Over and, to uh, you, over Rajiv to you, Monji. Yeah, Rajivji, thank you so much. I'd like to thank uh, Lieutenant General Shankar for having shared his thoughts, very important perspectives because it's important to be able to stand up and say what one has to say. And I think Lieutenant General Shankar has a lot of interesting thoughts. In fact, offline discussions of them he sees a lot of potential for the application of AI, AI-enabled systems in the world of space uh, weaponry, right? And weaponized AI coming in various forms. So Indian armed forces are a lot, lot more effective. I'd like to thank Sharad Sharma for having shown what industry leadership could mean, even if we have a certain possibly um, uh, baggage-oriented uh, leadership, governance leadership that did not stifle 
but encouraged and then they could show what public private partnership could do and i think the our prime minister modi's government has been very very uh, proactive in enabling that in a big way and of course uh, i'd like to thank professor kamakoti because what he is doing is absolutely grounded within the indian framework at same time looking at the potential for what technology can mean and can do to look up the challenges and square off on what rajiv ji is talking about and um, kamakoti yes there was a very interesting statement that rajiv ji made i don't think i heard it earlier he talked about the ai manifesto and that's something that's very interesting perhaps another session another talk another time another discussion we should really have a look at it on that note thank you all uh, very uh, heartfelt thanks to rajiv ji for the beautiful book that he has written to lieutenant general shankar for the time that he has spared and kept us grounded about the reality of what it is to be a artillery man to sharad sharma for showing what technological leadership can do within india in the industry framework and of course to professor kamakoti for showing that indians can really really come up to speed and take up the challenges that are staring at us ahead on that note thank you all so much thank you thank you thank you everybody